This is Our Prisons, The Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio with your hosts, Catherine Besteman and Leo Hilton. Today, we're talking with Carter Reed, the Maine-based co-chair of the Campaign to End Life Without Parole in Massachusetts. I'm Catherine Besteman, an abolitionist educator at Colby College. My co-host, Leo Hilton, is not able to join the program today. For the past two years, we've worked together to envision community-based alternatives to our current criminal legal system. This show explores how we keep our communities safe and asks the question, are prisons the answer? So Carter, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background? Sure, my name is Carter Reed and I am one of the co-chairs of the Massachusetts Campaign to End Life Without Parole. Um, my background is that I served just over 20 years in Massachusetts prison. I was um, sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. And I served from the age of 16 until the age of 37. Um, so during my time in prison, I think I started off like most prisoners. I was um, angry and bitter and resentful about my circumstances and, and my conviction and the whole process of the criminal justice system. And I initially felt uh, victimized by the system. And it took a while for me to, to grow up and to mature and to take responsibility for my actions and to understand um, the harm that I had caused. And that awakening for me really set me on a path of not only self-improvement, but working to uh, contribute to those around me and society as a whole. And I got involved in rehabilitative programming and I really never looked back. I immersed myself in everything that the prison system had to offer. I surrounded myself by like with like-minded people and I did everything I could to you know, be a contributor in my environment that I was in and prepare to be a contributor to society once I was released. And it's now been almost 10 years since I've been released. And I continued uh, that process of you know, trying to be a devoted and committed citizen uh, for the well-being of you know, those around me. And so I got involved in uh, volunteer work. When I got out of prison, I went back to school. I earned a degree. Um, I became a husband, a stepfather, homeowner, again, a, a college graduate, um, and a volunteer in not only doing work with uh, the criminal justice system, but I've worked with high-risk youth. I've worked with Habitat for Humanity, Rebuilding Together, um, United Way, uh, numerous organizations, and um, the one sort of takeaway that I had from my experience is, and it's very trite to say that, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover, but I think all of the things that any of us in society think about prisons and the kinds of people that are in prisons and what makes them do the things they've done that that send them to places like that. I think I was shocked, even though I was there myself for a crime, I was shocked at what I encountered there in terms of uh, the kinds of people 
that I encountered. And it's not an exaggeration to say, you know, at, at almost 50 years old now that, you know, some of the most amazing, caring, kind, generous, loving, compassionate, dedicated, committed people that I've ever encountered were in prison, and many of them were serving life sentences. Um, and so I look at my own success that I've had since I left prison um, as a testament to my relationships with the people that I encountered in prison. I mean, these were the people who molded and shaped me into the person I am today. And I think of all of the uh, beneficial traits that I've developed, I think are the product of, of those relationships. And it's unfortunate that we have um, such a strong tie to this retributive system of justice that doesn't do anything to promote uh, healing or reconciliation not just for the sake of um, perpetrators of crimes, but for the victims of crimes. And so I think that sort of stronghold that the retributive system has on, on us as a society really uh, does so much more harm than good. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't foster the very things that we try to achieve in the criminal justice system. And so for me, it's really important to try to disrupt the narrative that we have, that, that prisons are somehow good or beneficial or protect society in some way and, and demonstrate the harm that prisons and you know life sentences and virtual life sentences and just astronomically long sentences that you know we get so caught up in this idea of, of punishing people and seeking retribution that we miss you know, we miss out on the opportunity to promote uh, healing and restoration. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to ask you a little bit about life without parole, the concept of life without parole. And just to be clear to our listeners, typically a virtual life sentence is a sentence of 50 years or longer. Um, the United States is one of the only countries in the world that still hands down life without parole sentences. Uh, we do it more often than any other country in the world to more people. Most countries in the world have outlawed life without parole. They consider it cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, we are one of just a small handful of countries that still allow life without parole. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about your campaign in Massachusetts, your campaign to end life without parole. Um, if you could explain maybe a little bit about what parole is and how your campaign is going in Massachusetts. Sure. So uh, Massachusetts is, is it's actually an anomaly, even in the United States, which, as you mentioned, is one of the only countries that sentences people to life without parole. But Massachusetts has the highest per capita percentage of people serving life without parole in the entire country. And that's even more astounding when you consider the fact that Massachusetts has one of the lowest homicide rates in the country. It's absolutely absurd and insane to think that, you know, Massachusetts has a higher population of those per capita serving life without parole than Louisiana, which is the state with the second highest homicide rate in the country. Um, so that's, of course, um, you know, one of the big reasons why I'm part of the campaign. And of course, the other reason, as I alluded to earlier, is 
you know, my personal relationships with many of the individuals who are sentenced to life without parole, many of my personal mentors who've, you know, really done so much to help guide and, and shape me and move me um, to become someone committed to the betterment of, of those around me. And I, again, I, I learned that in prison. And so our, our campaign, um, you know, like any um, campaign to end life without parole, to end the death penalty is hard because there is such a foothold in many states as far as, you know, tough on crime and, and thinking that eliminating life without parole is somehow being soft on crime, that it's ignoring uh, victims and doesn't, you know, not take, is not taking victims into consideration. And so I think what we're trying to establish is that's not the case. And uh, this particular legislative session in Massachusetts, uh, there are actually four different bills that will impact life without parole for either some segment of the population or all of them. Although Massachusetts is widely considered to be a very uh, blue state when it comes to um, criminal justice, it's actually one of the most, uh, again, as alluded to with the population of those serving life without parole, it's one of the most red states in the country. Its criminal justice system took a turn for the worst in the 80s, and it has never recovered. And so uh, we're trying to highlight that. And of course, like most states and what has now come to uh, be a widely acknowledged fact is there are incredible uh, racial and ethnic disparities when it comes to the uh, handing out of the sentence of life without parole. And so that's another thing we're trying to challenge is what kind of inherent uh, biases and, and systematic prejudices have contributed to those sentences that account for that disparity. So when someone has, has taken a life, and I know what that's like because I've taken a life, and it took me a long time to come to grips with my own actions and my responsibility for those actions. I was in denial for a long time about, you know, why I was why I was at fault and why I was being judged you know, so harshly for what I had done. And eventually, as I mentioned earlier, I, I came to a point of self-maturation where I was able to reflect honestly enough and contemplate the, the harm and suffering that I was responsible for. And it then became important to me to to honor that by doing everything I could within my power to atone for what I had done and to, to honor the life of the young man that I had taken. And that wasn't an easy thing for me to, to face. And I think that's uh, one of the things that I discovered, you know, in my prison experience is I wasn't alone in that. Mm -hmm. That's one of the most difficult things for people in prison who are responsible or are somehow involved 
in any crime that involves the loss of life. Um, so again, with regard to, to mercy, I think back to a, a situation that happened to me personally, and I've long since struggled with my own feelings about, you know, what justice means in my particular case and, and whether or not it was even just for me to have the opportunity for parole. And I think that's just something that's, that's hard to evaluate because I, I know that I can never be objective about it. I just, I can't, but I think back to a situation where I was, um, my father was also in prison and um, there was an incident, I think I'd say probably about 16 or 17 years or so into my incarceration where I was transferred to another prison and a friend of my father, someone that knew my father when my father was in prison was sitting in the cafeteria you know, the chow hall table when, when I came in and I sat, you know, a few seats down from him, you know, not necessarily close enough, you know, to, to talk, but enough obviously for him to recognize me. And a few times I looked over at him and he just kept kind of looking at me and, and shaking and shaking his head kind of in, in this sort of disapproving way that it was, it was, you know, bothering me. I, I, I didn't, understand why he was looking at me with you know this kind of look and finally a, a seat next to him opened and I moved over to that seat and he continued to just with his head down kind of shake his head and finally he just looked over at me and he was very emotional and he just said how long are they going to continue to punish someone who no longer exists and you know I was, you know, taken aback and I just thought to myself the, you know, the reality of his statement is indeed a reality. You know, I was surrounded in prison by people who were no longer the people who committed the crimes that they were sentenced for. And so for me, that realization, that sort of simple statement was, I mean, it, it was a truth that, that struck me and it was something I kind of knew before then, but really just that subtle way of putting it really hit home and resonated with me. And I think that's part of, you know, what I try to get people to understand about what happens when a person completely changes from the person that they were into a completely different person and it doesn't negate at all what they did, mm -hmm. but certainly it says something about what we as a society, how we value that and what value we put on that. I mean, what is the incentive or encouragement for someone to change, to better themselves and to, to contribute to society if we as a society are not willing to recognize that change? Thank you, Carter. This is Justice Radio, and today we're talking with Carter Reed, the Maine-based co-chair of the Campaign to End Life Without Parole in Massachusetts.
So Carter, thank you for the stories that you have just shared with us. Uh, the, the two two of the things that I think resonate so powerfully with me is the importance in your life of the mentorship that you received from other men who were incarcerated, who taught you about things like emotional maturity. And you know, you grew up, you were you were you were raised by the other men with whom you were incarcerated, from whom you learned, it sounds like, about accountability, about maturing, about taking responsibility, about uh, engaging in the sorts of activities and programming that would help you to turn yourself into somebody somebody different, a mature man capable of reentering the world, um, having a family, supporting yourself, contributing to society. And the other thing is the ridiculousness of assuming that a person is the same person at 37 that they were at 15 or at 40 than they were at 20. We all know that that's not true. And yet our criminal legal system behaves as if it is true that at the time of sentencing, nothing from that point on ever changes for that person. And you're arguing to us that people evolve and change and they grow up. And the idea of, of throwing people away and locking them in that place that they may have been at when they committed a crime uh, and, and denying them the opportunity to grow and change and return and contribute um, is harmful to us all, not just to the people who get thrown away in prison. So I wanna ask you to link your campaign in Massachusetts to our situation here in Maine. We do not currently have parole in Maine, which means that any life sentence and any virtual life sentence is, you know, is, is actually a life sentence or a virtually life sentence with nobody given an opportunity to demonstrate how they've transformed themselves over the term of their incarceration. We have a bill right now, LD-178, to bring back parole in Maine, which is headed to the Senate this month. So from your perspective, you live in Maine now, you come out of the prisons in Massachusetts, you're a parolee, you've, you've come out on parole after being given a life sentence at the age of 15. Why would parole be something we wanna do here in Maine? So I think one of the primary things I kind of came to understand while I was incarcerated and, and fighting for my own uh, freedom through the parole process and and um, the sort of scarcity of, of parole, even though I was parole eligible and many other second and all secondary lifers in Massachusetts are parole eligible, um, there was a period where the, the parole board and to this day, uh, there was a, a scarcity of parole and the parole board was not paroling people. And so I was in a position where I was evaluating sort of the, the parole process and what is the purpose of parole and, and what is accomplished by parole. Of course, you know, these are things that I was writing to, you know, legislators and, and, and anyone who would listen, trying to get support for uh, changing the parole board and, and increasing the parole rate, particularly for lifers. And one of the things that, that that really struck me that came out of parole, although most people just assume the purpose of parole is so that an offender can serve portion of his sentence under community supervision as opposed to within prison. One of the things, the primary things that I saw, particularly with second degree lifers because their parole uh, process is different in Massachusetts from other parole cases and of course if they other cases where they have a defined release date parole is is somewhat irrelevant so for second degree lifers what i 
came to realize is it really facilitates some of the primary elements of restorative justice. You know, parole forces, if someone wants to be paroled, which I think everyone does, it forces people to take responsibility for their actions, to rehabilitate themselves, to develop viable skills, to uh, work and live and remain at liberty in the community. One of the prerequisites for parole is to demonstrate remorse. And that, to me, was an important facet of the parole process that I saw as beneficial to both the offender and the victim's families. Because that part of the process, even if it didn't result in, in complete healing and, and, and restoration, particularly when a life is lost, it really is a tremendously beneficial part of the parole process. Not just asking someone to take responsibility and say, you know, I committed the crime, it was me, but to think and reflect on the harm that they had caused and to be genuinely remorseful in a way that, that you know, surviving members of, of the victim's family and, and friends could see that and could see the change that someone could made and feel it palpably. And I think I've heard and seen that in numerous, uh, you know, parole hearings that there's almost a sort of catharsis for everyone involved uh, to go through that process. And I'm not saying that it is, it's not difficult for victims' families to relive because certainly it is. But I think when you contrast that with the other side of the coin, which is for victims' families to remain, you know, for the entire time of, of a person's incarceration, believing that this was committed by a heartless monster who has no desire to change, no desire to make amends or atone in any way. I think certainly having an opportunity for parole and having uh, the opportunity to express your remorse and your desire to make a difference and honor in whatever way you can the life that you're responsible for taking, I think is is a beneficial part of the process. I've never heard parole described that way. That's that's very moving to hear. Um, we, we hear much more about how parole hearings are likely to be re-traumatizing for victims. I've never heard of anybody talking about, I have heard of some victims talking about the importance of being able to hear and understand that people have 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 changed and to make some sort of peace with that but the way that you just articulated it the ability to see that the person who caused them lifelong harm uh is is genuinely invested in whatever can be done in the in the direction of some sort of repair while certainly taking accountability and honoring the life that was taken if if that's in fact what the crime was um what are the arguments against parole and how would you respond to them? So I think the primary argument against parole is is what you just mentioned that it's you know a slap in the face to to victims, family members, that it's it's traumatizing um to them to have to relive the event the events. And I think 
I mean, that's really the only argument that's presented that's at all feasible. Occasionally, you'll have someone say that, you know, rolling people put society at risk. There's, you know, inherent danger, you know, um, you know, can someone who committed that type of an offense ever actually change and, and be a different person? And of course, the irony of that is that you look at, again, in Massachusetts alone, there's something like 400 secondary lifers currently on parole. None of them are causing any type of harm in their communities. They're all living uh, in ways that are helpful, you know, to the community besides just being taxpaying citizens. I'm almost, you know, amazed, even though I, I've known many of these people for, for most of my life, that all of them gravitate towards, you know, social service fields, or if not for their full-time employment as, you know, volunteers, they, a lot of them work in, uh, you know, mental uh, substance abuse recovery. A, a ton of them are involved in, in uh, youth outreach. And so I think obviously that argument, of course, that there's any risk to society by parole is, is absurd, but I think it's just something that people feel the need they, they have to throw out because, you know, somebody might actually question whether or not there's, there's a risk to society. But I think ultimately the the primary argument is the, the trauma that victims' families uh, may experience at a parole hearing. And I think you have to consider that that's not true for, for all families. While I'm sure it is true for some, I would like to, to believe that human frailty and fallibility, I don't think that everyone is as disposed to uh, be forgiving, but I certainly think that we all have the capacity for understanding and empathy. And I think having that opportunity for people who've committed these offenses to be able to express themselves and to help those suffering understand not only the place that they were in when they committed that crime, but where they are now, again, I think is, I think it's, has the possibility to, to promote healing. And that for me is sort of a driving force behind what I do and how I live my life out here in society. Thank you for that. And I think when we look nationally at restorative justice organizations that work with um, people who have caused grievous harm and people who have been grievously harmed through restorative justice healing um, uh, project, I'm thinking of Common Justice in New York and Collective Justice in Seattle as two examples. Um, we see outcomes that are that are far more reparative and healing than leaning hard into vengeance and, and punitiveness as our only existing response to harm. Thank you, Carter, for joining us uh, this month on Our Prisons the Answer. It's been wonderful to hear from you and your experience. And thank you for the work that you're doing in Massachusetts. I hope, I hope the campaign goes great. Next week, please join Marian Anderson for Voices of the Directly Impacted on Justice Radio.